0: Content warning. Racism, homophobia, Nazis, eugenics, the apocalypse, and psychic demons from outer space! Action! Excitement! Horror romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? The orifice, a wide, glittering gangway extruded itself and drove purposefully towards the ground. It seemed a solid sheet of metal with handrails along either side. There were no steps. It was as steep and smooth as a toboggan slide and, one would have thought, equally impossible to ascend or descend in any ordinary manner. The world was watching that dark portal, within which nothing had yet stirred. Then the seldom-heard yet unforgettable voice of Karelin floated softly down from some hidden source. His message could scarcely have been more unexpected. There are some children by the foot of the gangway. I would like two of them to come up and meet me. There was silence for a moment. Then a boy and a girl broke from the crowd and walked with complete lack of self-consciousness toward the gangway and into history. Others followed, but stopped when Corellan's chuckle came from the ship. Waving cheerfully to the crowds beneath and to their anxious parents, who, too late, had probably remembered the legend of the Pied Piper, the children began swiftly ascending the steep slope. Yet their legs were motionless and soon it was clear also that their bodies were tilted at right angles to that peculiar gangway. It possessed a private gravity of its own, one which could ignore that of Earth. The children were still enjoying this novel experience and wondering what was drawing them upwards when they disappeared into the ship. A vast silence lay over the whole world for the space of twenty seconds, though afterward no one could believe that time had been so short. Then the darkness of the great opening seemed to move forward and Corellan came forth into the sunlight The boy was sitting on his left arm, the girl on his right. They were both too busy playing with Corellon's wings to take any notice of the watching multitude. It was a tribute to the Overlord's psychology and to their careful years of preparation that only a few people fainted. Yet there could have been fewer still anywhere in the world who did not feel the ancient terror brush for one awful instant against their minds before reason banished it forever. There was no mistake. The leathery wings, the little horns, the barbed tail, all were there. The most terrible of all legends had come to life, out of the unknown past. Yet now it stood smiling in ebon majesty, with the sunlight gleaming upon its tremendous body and with a human child resting trustfully on either arm. Enormous spaceships have appeared, hovering in the sky above Earth's cities. A message comes from above. Unfathomably powerful alien visitors are here, bearing with them a message of hope. They are here to shepherd us into a new age, one of prosperity and peace like caring parents providing guidance for their wayward children. But the aliens remain enigmatic, distant, their motives unclear, and portions of humanity remain untrusting even as our society starts to radically reshape itself. It's a premise we've seen multiple times before in science fiction, especially movies and TV, and it has its origin in Arthur C. Clarke's novel, Childhood's End, which we'll be looking at here on What Mad Universe today. Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to What Mad Universe. Uh, I'm Adam Prosser. With me is Philip Rice. Hello. And uh, we're joined today once again by our friend uh, Andrew Hickey. Hi. Hello. Um, yes, uh, w- and as I mentioned, we are going to be discussing a, fer- a, a fairly seminal science fiction novel, another uh, post-war science fiction novel by Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, we did look at Arthur C. Clarke briefly uh, this at the beginning of this season, Uh, Up till then, he was actually one of the big, uh, the titans of post-World War II's golden age, as it's called, science fiction, that we hadn't uh, looked much at. Um, He's best known, again, for writing uh, The the Sentinel, which is the story we looked at, which became the uh, basis for um, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. But honestly, uh, this story may have inspired 2001 A Space Odyssey just as much as The Sentinel did. Um, It is... Uh, in many ways, it's very archetypal. It, it set forward a lot of ideas that uh, science fiction has been uh, reconfiguring for some time uh, since then. Um, Philip, you were you were gonna? Uh, did you manage to read this whole uh, this whole yep. book? Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's it's. Um, what did you think? <laughs> um,
1: well, uh, I liked it. Um, uh, especially, I thought it, it was really coming together at the end. Or I thought that. Um, uh, the idea of um, the uh, uh, alien visitors are here to uh, shepherd us into uh, a new evolutionary stage, even though that's not how evolution works. But, you know, um, <laughs> um, it, it reminded me of um, uh, Odd John by Olaf Stapledon uh, in some ways, sort of just um, expanding on some ideas from that, because that also had a, a race of, um, I believe the book actually coined the phrase Homo Superior of, um, large-headed, um, um, psychic, uh, uh, children who were, um, uh, it, it that book ends in a very different way, but, uh, uh, still, I, I, feel like that's, um, I think that might be the first, the earliest time that hmm. was a big thing in science fiction. I, I'm not sure if it predates that. I, I haven't hmm. come across it, because that was well, 1930, yeah. so...
0: Yeah, yeah, Stapleton seems to have been a bit of a pioneer in a lot of stuff. Uh, but that's actually sort of the, the other element, which, um, <laughs> you know, like that's actually the, the element that's sort of the hook is the aliens arriving. And uh, the whole idea of human evolution and, and psychics and, and superpowered humans uh, comes later in the book. Uh, so we'll, we'll get back to that, I guess. Um, but um, so, yeah, Andrew, do you know, um, in terms of that sort of uh, benevolent alien uh, arrival. Uh, where does this book sort of fit in the larger um, history of science fiction in terms of that particular idea?
2: Um, I don't, I. it's not an idea that was hugely used before this. Um, I mean, yeah, the, uh, the, the Stapledon influence is obviously very, very, very big in this, but I don't think Stapledon did much with the benevolent alien thing. Um, Clark sa- said of Stapledon's other book, Last and First Men, which I th- which I think is at least as much an influence on Childhood's End as anything, that it was that no other book had a greater influence on my life. It and its successor, Star Maker, the twin summits of Stapledon's literary career. So, um, mm-hmm. I so it, the, this is very much coming from that. The one thing I can think of that's sort of similar in the benevolent alien kind of thing is this story farewell to the master which became the film the day the earth stood still um but oh but that's obviously um now that that is something that we know clark had read um i it's. I'm afraid it's been thirty years since I read Clark's book, Astounding Days, which talks about his love of old pulp science fiction. So I can't remember the details, but I remember him referencing that. I believe that was a story that was edited by uh, John Campbell in Ast- Astounding Science Fiction. Um, yep, yeah, it was published in the October 1940 Astounding. So, um, okay. so that's possibly the f- the first the first big story I can think of. Of the aliens cut the aliens coming down and trying to make the world better, um, although that was far more in the film version than in the short story, and the film version came after childhood's end. Um, right. So, so we don't know to what extent what influenced what. Uh, although, having said that, um, to go back to what you're saying about childhood's end influencing 2001. One thing I wish I could find is a copy of the original printing of *Childhood's End*, because the the text we have now is Clark's revised version from the seventies, and he, particularly, he fixed up the beginning. And I think, but there's minor changes to the prose throughout. So I've not read the original nineteen forties publication, and I wonder to what extent he retroactively added in some of the. 2001 flavoring i mean like the prologue is set in the year 2001 in the version we have and i wonder if that was the case in the 40s version you know um so it might it might be that that he's put some of his Uh, his 2001 ideas back in back into it oh okay
0: that's interesting um well i know that um like the original um uh the original story um, like it was, it was published as a story in the forties. Again, uh, I'm going to say it was an astounding because I know Clark was one of the, uh, astounding authors. He was one of the major ones in that orbit. Uh, but it was a, sh- that basically the first third of this novel or the first of the three portions of this novel, uh, was a, was a, a short story with the, the twist that these aliens come down, they make everything better. They basically say, Everyone's stopped fighting war, they cure disease, they do everything, and they sort of act as benevolent overlords. Uh, but they won't reveal themselves and humanity's sort of getting a little stressed about that. And eventually the reveal is that they look like uh, devils or demons, uh, which is exactly why they didn't want to reveal themselves because they knew uh, humanity was going to <laughs> um, would have a bad reaction to that. Um, and it sounds like uh, Clark basically, so that that's another rewriting that happened because he definitely he did it as a fix-up novel or at least that yeah. portion of it and he rewrote it into uh, the the novel that exists uh, as as we see it um, and it, it uh, and and then it sort of goes off in in more directions so he he, he initially he just had that sort of twi- very twilight zone feel yeah. um,
2: and I was just going to say that the story was actually. Um, Published in uh, New Worlds, the British magazine that later uh, got sort of taken over by Michael Moorcock, uh, but which was uh, originally co-founded by Arthur C. Clarke and which um, also people like John Wyndham were involved in in the forties and early fifties. Um, I I don't actually know of Clarke publishing that much in Astoundings, oddly enough, um, given that given that he's sort of associated with those people. Um, I, he may he may well have done, but he but it was. He a lot of his stuff was originally published in things like New Worlds in in British magazines. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I did.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize. And of course, he was he was British, and and I I guess yeah. I didn't make that connection. Um, <laughs> I I guess uh, yeah, that's that's I didn't realize it was a, a New Worlds and the and the Moorcock connection as you mentioned. Uh, so I guess oh, okay. So uh, that that's really interesting. I guess it's maybe it's fairer to say that if he had been American, he would have been really. Uh, he yeah. would have been in astounding all the time. Uh, absolutely, um,
2: um, yeah. I mean, one thing that I find interesting about Clark is he is the first example we have in science fiction of a thing you get a lot in both comics and pop music and other things in the sixties and onwards of a British person taking an, um, taking American popular trash, if you like and trying to do something more interesting with it while thinking they're doing the same thing. The same way you have Alan Moore and Grant Morrison reinventing American superhero comics in the image of what they they thought of as kids. The same way you have the Beatles and the other British acts bringing American rock and roll music back to America, transfigured. Clark is somebody who has taken... Clark seems to think he is writing in the astounding style. He see, he seems to think he's writing this stuff that is very dry and technical and you know he he he's he very much considers himself a part of you know Asimov and early Heinlein. Um but in fact he's much more like late Heinlein but even more than that he's he's like Olaf Stapledon he's like uh, George Bernard Shaw. He he's write, he's writing these weird eschatological novels which have which have very little relation to the kind of stuff that was getting published in america but clark thought he was doing the same thing it's very odd when you look at it hmm. that is an
0: interesting point yeah because i've always i've always assumed again because he's a golden age guy and i've always assumed his stuff was very very technical i've i've read a very late uh novel of clark's uh called uh, uh the hammer of god um, and, um, it was, uh, it, it seemed to want to be very hard science fiction and, and so on. Uh, oh, well, I've read Roddy with Rama as well. Yeah. Uh, I, f- I always forget that's him actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it, it, it kind of feels like he moved into trying to be a hard sci-fi guy later on. But as you say, yeah, this, this doesn't feel like hard other than the occasional shout out to plausibility that he kind of calls attention to. Yeah. Um, he, he, it, he always... it, it doesn't feel.
2: Go ahead. Sorry, he always thought of himself as a hard science fiction person. Remember, this is somebody who came up with the idea for the geosynchronous satellite, um, and he—he he was a—he um, um, had a sort of group of people who were trying to do rocket science in Britain in the forties, and he—he he, he was a hard science person. But then, and sometimes that comes into his novels from, from the start. I mean, there's there's one novel of his about the first trip to the moon, which is just. You know, talking about the technical problems of building what he assumed would be a British rocket to the moon in the sixties. Yeah, uh, and it is just all all about you know the hydrogen flow and that kind of thing and ballistics trajectories. But he, he time and again, Clark writes these things that are about about the sense of the numinous and on gigantic big timescales. And, you know, 2001 is the most obvious example because everybody knows that. But, you know, he also wrote Childhood's End. He also wrote uh, his other truly great novel, I think, is one called The City and the Stars, about a last city of humanity living at at the end of the universe and um, sort of... With people who are created occasionally programmed to disrupt society in order to see if there's anything else out there, and that's a wonderfully, that's a wonderfully bizarre, um, real sense of wonder thing with absolutely no hard science in it whatsoever. And you have his stories like um, things like the nine billion, uh, the nine billion names of God. Do you know that story at all?
0: Uh, Yeah, I've read that uh, one. Oh, okay, go
2: ahead. Um, It's a story about a. A group of monks who believe that if you write down every... I, 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 as I recall, it was like a nine-letter nine, nine letter word. Every nine-letter word is a name of God. And if you write all of them down, eventually, eventually you have named God completely and fulfilled God's purpose for the, for the creation. And they've been doing this for centuries and got nowhere. And then computers are invented, they, they hire somebody to come in and install a computer for them that just prints all these names out in a couple of days and the, the last line is is, is the, the computer technicians looking up and seeing the stars starting to blink out you know hmm.
1: the, yeah the... I, I, I remember uh, hearing about that when um, uh, the Doctor Who episode did the, uh, the stars are disappearing thing yeah um, and yeah. Um, people pointed out that that was probably taken from that story.
2: Yeah, and then there was another one he did, which was one of the ones that Kubrick was looking at when they were making 2001, uh, called The Star, um, about somebody who's on, about a theologian who is on an expedition to, a, to another solar system and discovers that there, were, the, there was life there and a, a wonderful civilization and beautiful and peaceful and that it was wiped out by a supernova, which was the Star of Bethlehem. Uh, and, and so and these are the kind of concerns that clark keeps coming to time and again there's there's sort of this deep religious concerns if you like um and it's totally totally opposed to the nuts and nuts and bolts uh you know a story, a story like the cold equations or something like that it's got nothing to do with to do with those kind of things it's it's all it's all very much the kind of thing that you would get in the later New Wave thing, except the prose style, of course, which is very, very similar to your Asimovs and your, your early Heinlein. This, the, you know, lots of interchangeable people, white white men named but for their surnames that with no character whatsoever, kind of thing, you know. But the the whole worldview is, is a mystical one. Totally, totally different from what the Americans were doing, but Clark seems to have thought he was doing the same thing, and it's, re- it's really fascinating to me.
0: Sorry, Philip, you, I think you had something you wanted to say. Uh, about,
1: uh, yeah, uh, uh, just um, going into... There, there uh, like some uh, nods to scientific plausibility. One that I noticed that, uh, is that the the alien ships uh, don't travel faster than light. They, it, it's sub-light speed, but it still follows relativistic... Uh, Physics, so um, the the aging thing and that I mean that ties into the plot of, of the character um, uh, leaving and coming back and finding himself the last human alive um,
0: yeah.
1: but uh, it, it also uh, is you know one of the I mean I'm, I'm sure it's it's done a lot but uh, uh, really mainstream examples I've seen of that being mentioned
0: yeah uh, that's the, actually a uh, good question a good question. Was that um, a made? Had that been brought up a lot in science fiction? The whole relativistic time thing, because I I know it's a bit of a complex idea to grasp. Uh, so I don't know if the pulp sci-fi would get into it as much as they did.
2: It it was got into actually by the astounding people quite a lot. Uh, John Campbell was very keen on scientific plausibility, so long as so long as you had his rather odd ideas of what counted as scientific including things like Scientology um but uh, uh, you know and John Campbell had all all sorts of bizarre ideas but he, but he liked to think of himself as being a hard science person and so it it would be talked about in um it it would be talked about in Stuff that stuff that Campbell published in Astounding and l- at least hand waved in the other magazines once he started doing that. it obviously wasn't considered at all in the pre campbellian days, really you know your docksmiths and so on didn't care about that, but you would get s- something the other thing of course is that a lot of the people who were writing for Astounding were a bit cranky. Um, and so you have things like in um, *Methuselah's Children* by Robert Heinlein, which was originally—that's a, that's a, that's a fix-up from stuff that was published in *Astounding*. And there you have them going faster than light and making some cranky comment about "I knew I, I knew Einstein was wrong. I could never put my finger on quite why," kind of <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and sort of sort of saying, "Yeah, Einstein, Einstein didn't actually make any sense, and, and it turns out he was wrong." but at least making it a thing and but even there they do acknowledge relativistic time time distortion as part of that as part of the story as well um and that i think i think Methuselah's children might even have been the same year as childhood's end it's certainly certainly around then i think so yeah it it was it was a thing that was talked about and it was a thing you would expect clark to know about um clark's another one who seemed to who seemed to consider psychic stuff very plausible um but but who in his areas of scientific knowledge which were space science and um to an extent un- underwater biology knew everything and then just and and so those details would always be right any any detail <laughs> any detail about space any detail about underwater is is going to be correct in Clark anything else is going to be ignored
0: huh uh, okay that's it. i didn't know he he knew uh, underwater biology i didn't know that was uh,
2: his field
0: uh yeah it's it's it is really interesting you're saying like he's as you say he's got these these sort of religious ideas that uh, you know but as you point out he does have a respect for science and he i guess had a scientific background uh so it is it is an interesting sort of mix of those things um, that actually brings us to uh, this book's uh, looking at science versus superstition. Um, maybe, Phil, Philip, maybe you want to talk a bit about that, uh, just to toss it over to you.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, w- something that I found interesting, I was, uh, through a lot of the book, I was thinking the aliens, or uh, once the aliens reveal themselves, that they're not really that alien. Like, uh, they're um, very similar to humans in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of their, their actions. like, um, And that actually is explained later on that they were chosen specifically because of their similarity, which I thought was interesting. Um, obviously, they, they look like demons. Oh, uh, one thing that that bothered me a bit is demons are not universally... Or the, the common modern version of demons with the horns and wings and stuff is not a universally evil thing. Like, obviously, Greek mythology, it's uh, uh, fawns and... Um, or, uh, Pan, and, you know, like, po- relatively positive gods who, who had those features, and then they were later applied to evil things, uh, specifically to say paganism was evil, uh, by yeah. Christians. So, um, that, that, I don't know, it just bugged me a bit, but it's not really a, a deal breaker or anything. Uh,
2: yeah. but
1: anyway, um, the, uh, uh overlords, the, the demonic looking aliens, are, uh, we find out um, completely unable to uh, access any uh, psychic abilities. They have no latent psychic powers like humans apparently have. Um, And uh, they also don't seem to have any sense of creativity or uh, art. It describes their buildings as completely unornamented and everything's very functional. And I I thought that was an interesting um, uh, sort of the, the... Psychic potential of humans is also, you know, artistic potential. It's it's this idea of, um, um, like you said, like uh, a pure scientific worldview versus a uh, artistic worldview.
2: Yeah, there's one there's one thing though that that just shows how. How limited, in some ways, Clark's views of these things could be. I mean, Clark was uh, Clark was himself an atheist, I believe. Um, and there's a, there's a wonderful bit early on where where he, he talks about how the um, the overlords have sent down a single. Time viewer that allows people to see almost anything that happened in the last five thousand years, and so everybody's looked at the origins of all the religions and realized that they weren't supernatural, and now everybody's an atheist and is perfectly happy. <laughs> and, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, because because that's because that's going to happen. That uh, without, <laughs> uh, uh, f- everybody is going, to, everybody is going to look at this one machine that, that claims to show thi- <laughs> things that happened four th- four or five thousand years ago with no knowledge of its workings or anything, just like shows them on a. TV screen and say, yep, okay, you got me, yeah, oh, the, yeah. I, I, I was which wrong. <laughs> Which, Which was produced by mysterious
1: by... aliens who look like yeah. demons? Or, I mean, yes, I guess exactly. Like that, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly.
0: Yeah, and and it's it's it, you might say they were destroyed with facts and logic. Yeah, yeah exactly.
2: Yeah. 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 And Clark really seems to believe that people can be destroyed with facts and logic. You can you can just <laughs> that, that, that that people will just go. Oh, I'm sorry. I was I was completely incorrect. My whole worldview was wrong. I will become a scientific rationalist now. The end. <laughs>
1: Yes. Yeah, there's a, um, you, you have in the notes here, Adam, uh, the racial issues, because um, oh, yes. it, it also, yeah, it presents a, a future where, where uh, racism is a thing of the past, because, uh, you know, we've evolved beyond that. Uh, so we can and, all and, use the, the <laughs> Yeah, specifically the N-word, so everybody has N-word privileges. I'm like, why do you have to bring that up? <laughs> Yeah, that it seems unnecessary. Well,
0: well and then they, the other thing is like the first sort of <clears throat> twinkling of this. It should be mentioned that one of the major protagonists uh Jan who's uh who's Jan Reynolds. It, Reynolds is that his last name? Um I so? think that's so, uh,
1: Roderick's. Roderick's. Roberts, oh, yes.
0: Yeah, um he's he's uh essentially the protagonist of part of the book, certainly the third part. Uh and he um he's he's uh he's black. Um so I mean like Clark clearly had like good intentions but there's a lot of sort of unexamined stuff in there. The first <laughs> yes. sort of inkling you get of it is when he talks about how um the one government that wouldn't it didn't immediate that wanted to inst- to keep a caste system and keep a racial caste system and couldn't be dissuaded by the aliens until they put on a display of fairly benign display of their power but it was still very powerful and it scared them straight was south africa which he reveals then was it because it was dominated by black people and the whites were oppressed at that point in history like that was and, and he clearly means it as like well that was the that was the the backlash to what had happened under apartheid at this point in the future you know, now the black people were oppressing the white people. And, yeah. you know, he, again, he means well, I think, and he's trying to make you, he's trying to, quote, chin-strokingly make you think uh, and yeah. talk about how racial oppression is always bad. But, you know, to use that as an example of, you know, somebody who was oppressed and then turn it around and say, well, but now they're doing the oppressing.
2: To be honest, I don't it's even think It's a little he... awkward. I don't even think he thought it through that well, and again, I, I I'm pretty sure that must be something that he put in in the seventies rewrite purely because the racial oppression in South Africa only really started ramping up to the point where it was noticeably worse than other than other Western countries around the time he first wrote uh, *Childhood's End*. But it was very, very, very much in the news by the seventies. Um, but I, the way he, the way he does it with it, with it being the the white minority. As a sort of throwaway at the end, I I th- I think he's trying to make a joke. I th- I think he I think he's trying to make it. Ha! Your expectations were reversed, and thus the, thus the humor arose. Kind kind of thing, you know. It, 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 <laughs> I I don't I don't even think he's think thinking about it that much. I think I think he's thinking. Ha, ah, You thought I was going to say the whites were oppressing the blacks, but ah! It's the blacks oppressing the whites. Do you see? Ha <laughs> you know, yeah. ha! I I th- I think I think that's the full the full extent of his thinking there. Um. I, he is he is tr- trying to be race blind, but I mean, like I said, he he thinks everybody has n-word privileges because the n-word is the most convenient word to use. He says so. That's what. So that's yeah. why. That's why everybody uses it.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, the South yeah. African thing uh, felt particularly uncomfortable, and it, this isn't really Clark's fault because this is a modern thing. But that that's sort of a modern talking point. That in oh in post-apartheid yeah, yes, yeah. South Africa that the that, yeah. that white people are oppressed and you know yeah. that. Murders of farmers or whatever. A, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I,
0: yeah. Would, I would argue the reason I think he he like he meant generally well about that is I think if you're going to call attention to racism at all, even in sort of a what if kind of way. Yeah. And at that particular point in history, I don't think you, you, it's true that nowadays we get the sort of, well, they depress us if they had the chance. But I, at that point, yeah. I think just merely pointing out that racial equality didn't exist and that it was a problem. Was probably going to, you know, make people feel uncomfortable in and of itself. Yeah. Again, you, as you say, if that bit was rewritten in the 70s, then that does change things a little. But, I, but, but again, I, 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 think it's kind of a that 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 actually. There's a lot of this book that feels like it kind of vibes with what we see in the the new atheist movement and yes. and a lot of the online culture, the sort of chin stroking online culture, the Richard Dawkinses of the world, but not even yeah. necessarily the atheism, even though that is a big theme in the novel as you say, it's about, you know, we did away with the religion, but just that whole idea of like, well, I'm a pon- I ponder the imponderables, I think I think, you know, highly of things, I sit on a cloud and and eat ambrosia yeah. and think of all the great ideas. And yeah. and you don't examine your own uh you know uh biases and problems because you're just such an enlightened person. Uh you can see traces of that throughout the book.
2: Oh yes, absolutely. I mean that culture very much comes from the nerd culture, which comes from ultimately, it's all John Campbell's fault. And Clark, as I say, was trying to write in the Campbellian tradition. Though, of course, John Campbell would never, ever have allowed a story with a black protagonist. So right there, you can see an immense difference. You know, John Campbell was viciously, viciously racist, whereas Clark is benignly racist, if you like. Although, again, the story is trying to engage with the idea of empire, and it sort of fails miserably at doing that. You know, it talks. It talks about how the British got an empire by accident and didn't really know what to do with it until it disappeared again. And obviously, that's mm-hmm. not that's not what actually happened with the British Empire. And it, <laughs> it's it's very much trying to make the overlords seem like. I, th- I think he's sort of half conscious that he's doing this and half not. He sort of knows what he's doing, but he doesn't really know what he's doing. But he's trying to make the overlords seem very much a parallel to the British Empire. He even has them explicitly make that parallel at, at, at one point. And of course, that is nothing like what the British Empire was actually like. It is nothing like that. <laughs> right. but, but it's very much like what the British Empire's self-image was. Um, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the... There's a, but he is, he's trying to, but he's also trying to be anti-imperialist as well. He's try, he sort of talks about those countries' independence movements as being a good thing for them, but he, he doesn't, and he even sets up the humans who want independence from the overlords as being okay, but a but f, f, misguided, but well-meaning you know he, right. and he he's trying he's trying very hard not to be paternalistic while still being incredibly paternalistic um
0: well that's that's actually interesting because i i'm thinking of uh, in my other podcast plug 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 the mirror universe podcast where i talk about star trek a lot with the uh, with uh, douglas macdonald norman and and we um we keep going back to the fact that the federation is sort of america's self-image in many ways yeah. and that's how i was uh, like i was interacting with this book i was thinking of amer and again i mean i i i forgot clark was british for large stretches of this and i yeah. kept thinking of it as again the american the pax americana and the you know everything's yeah, we're here with good intentions to make everything okay. And sometimes we mess up and sometimes it, it doesn't go well. And it's not to say that we're omniv- omniscient and we get everything right, but we, we we stumble. But, you know, we're here with good, with generally broadly good intentions, which is the Federation Star Trek. And you can see how these ideas fed into stuff like Star Trek and, and oh, post-World yes. War II science fiction, 100%. As, as I mentioned, it has a Twilight Zone feel, that first chunk of the book. It, it feels like yeah. a Twilight Zone episode in many ways um but but um it it is interesting though that like you get that um that benign oh, everyone has everyone here is a is a man of of good intentions yeah. <laughs> kind of attitude to it but but i'd also argue now here's what i'd like to ask andrew what was clark's relationship with communism and socialism
2: i actually don't know that much about clark's um explicit politics um i believe he was left leaning um but i i don't i don't know for sure i do um i i do know that most of the people with whom he had any kind of intellectual relationship were on the left whether it be people in the circle that put together the original uh, new world people people like john john windham who was raised mm-hmm. um who, who came up in a um feminist quaker um circle or people like Asimov in the States who, who was at the time associated with the Futurians who were basically Trotskyists a lot of them so mm. uh, but I, I don't recall seeing much of I don't recall seeing much of Clark's explicit political statements statements himself um, and then of course they may have changed over his very very long life um, but what mm. I would say is that in general in Britain at that point technological optimism and clark was very much a technological optimist was very much linked with the with the left with with, with ideas of equality with with ideas of progress um, so it would just given everything else in clark's work at the time it would astonish me if at this point clark wasn't on clark wasn't on the left
0: yeah. Yeah. the The reason. Yeah. that 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 tracks. Um, the reason I ask, uh, it, and and I'm glad you brought up the Futurians and Osimov, uh because it's the same thing. Like getting into the Foundation series, uh, the big thing, and and I brought it up in the context of just sort of American exceptionalism. But the big thing you see in that in that period is just the idea that you can build this perfect society, and it will be global or in. In the case yeah. of science fiction, it, it's intergalactic. Um, yeah. Even even we, we talked about the uh, the the Lensman novels recently, and even those novels, which are very very reactionary and and brutal and 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 horrible in many ways, uh, yeah. they still make a virtue out of the idea of being cosmopolitan, or in this case. Cosmos, apolitan, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> with with merging with like not retreating into yourself and merging with the intergalactic the the whole the whole galaxy and becoming part of that, and and I I feel like that's there's an element obviously there's an element of that in the book as well where it's like we mean well and it, but it's coming from a like a liberal perspective it's like well we mean well we have a plan and you have to yeah. obey and it's this like libertarian viewpoint that makes you makes people go no 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 i i you know i want my i want my humanity and i want my individuality which yeah. he's not necessarily super sympathetic to but he's not unsympathetic to it either but it's not it's not like as you say it's not like all oh, those fools who want independence it's it's more the idea of well you 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 aren't Going along with the plan
2: because you've yeah. got this sort of cowboy mentality, and he doesn't seem to be in favor of that. No, no. Well, I mean, you, you could all, you could almost see the overlords as being Asimov's worldview with Harvey Seldon, and the, the rebels against it being Robert Heinlein's worldview. You know, you could see Heinlein mm. writing this from from completely the opposite perspective. Um, and of course, Heinlein was was the one of those writers who went most right wing. Um, and yes, the the. the I, Clark, Clark is a fundamentally utopian thinker. Although all his utopias are odd and twisted, and he sees flaws in all his utopias, and he he fundamentally believes in progress. He fund and he fundamentally believes in humanity, um, and of course, also as well um, the other the other thing you have to you have to remember about Clark compared to the others is that Clark was gay, and so there there is. That aspect of him being, repress experiencing oppression himself in that in that way, which you don't get in in Asimov or Heinlein. You know, the, well Asimov will experience re- repression because because of being Jewish. So that's, um, but Clark Clark was a discriminated against minority at this point, and I th- I think I think there there is a certain um amount of sort of yearning for a better world in Clark that you, that you don't get in a lot of these other writers. A lot of these other writers Mm -hmm. like the idea of tech technology because it makes, makes things more exciting. Clark likes the idea of technology to make things better. And that's a a crucial difference.
0: Yeah. I I think that's, I think you, you, that, that you can feel that. Uh, Philip, sorry, you've got, I think you've got a good connection to make here that you wanted to talk about.
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, reading this, I, I, uh, because we had previously done an episode in the Lilith Brood series by um, Octavia Butler, um, which uh, reading this, you realize, uh, was obviously influenced by um, um, this book, Uh, Childhood's End. Um, And it's sort of, uh, but I I don't mean to say it's a ripoff, just that it it takes some of the ideas and and expands on them in different ways. And I... uh, you and I came on sort of different sides of the, the O'Connor uh, uh, Owen Connolly admit dammit oh, Owen Calley Owen Kelly, Um yeah uh, whether or not they're you know benevolent or or not uh, but uh, the, the book um, obviously uh, does play with the the ideas of whether this is right or um, you know uh, consent issues and uh, that um, in a lot of ways um Childhoods End sort of takes for granted that the um, the overlords are are definitely here for our benefit and um, their their ways are, are correct and all that. Um, it just a uh, it...
0: yeah. It's it's that you're right and and I think that. Like, I'd had exposure. I hadn't read this particular novel before we did this episode, but that general branch of science fiction i have been exposed to in a number of different ways. And I think that was coloring my view of um, the Xenogenesis trilogy, Lilith's Brood, because I, 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 I'm used to the idea of, yeah, aliens will show up and save us and make life better. And that's very much at the, the, at the core of Lilith's Brood. But, um, you know, as you say, it, it very much interrogates that and makes it questionable. Um, and like because they're, they're it, like they're very in a way far more extreme than happens in Childhood's End. Yeah, uh, they are very much um, uh, manipulating humanity in, into something very different and very alien and in many ways kind of slightly repulsive. Although they they make they try to make you see the the beauty in it in that in that book. And that's that's definitely seated in Childhood's End here too. And it's kind of a thing. I mean, even the title of Childhood's End is making you go like, yeah, well we. You have to put aside childish things and and become something new. Uh, but it's you know it's got a, a sadness to it and it's got a a, a, a discomfort to it to say yeah, yeah you're not going to be what you are anymore.
2: Yeah, it's it's a weird one. Um, I you can you can put childhoods end very easily in the same context as a lot of the other stuff that was happening in the fifties, particularly among British writers, of people scared of the. Um, next generation coming up, you know, it makes a fascinating comparison with the Midwich Cuckoos by John Wyndham, which does very, very similar things in terms of you know the the young kids with the psychic powers and and the adults don't understand it. But of course, go, the Midwich Cuckoos, it's purely terrifying. Whereas with Clark, it's a terrible beauty if you like. Um, obviously, it's devastating when the kids go off and become their, their own thing that is not human anymore, and. And leave the adults behind, but it's also beautiful. Whereas in Wyndham, it's just like my God, these things are going to replace us, and they're they these scary alien things. Um, it, it's it's a it's it's a it's a very very fascinating. There's a there's a pull there between the the terror of the new and the beauty of the new which which you don't get in Wyndham. And again, the the real point I that I think that should should be made is just how how this connects to things like The Midwich Cookers or even like The Lord of the Flies, this sort of terror of the young that's going through all sorts of novels in the very early fifties. But also it's it's connecting to you know, they they explicitly mentioned Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman at one point in the in the thing, which again is is a teleological evolution thing about the the far future evolution of mankind and that that kind of thing and the connections to Stapledon and also to people like C S Lewis who was um who was very much ideologically the the opposite of Clark in almost every way um but was writing very eschatological science fiction himself there's the wonderful story about him being invited by the um, the the sort of rocket scientist group that Clark that Clark was part of to to come and talk with them and ha- and ha- having a drink with them and, and saying at the end you know you you are all undoubtedly very wicked but then, but then then of course you know we're we're all wicked in our own way words that I can't remember the exact quote that Lewis used but it's just just like you know I disagree with everything you say but you're clearly a nice bunch of lads kind kind of thing and, <laughs> and Lewis was absolutely fascinated by Childhood's End. Um, I I I got this um earlier because I, I remembered this. Um he um this is a letter that Lewis wrote to um Joy Davidson who later became his wife, um who had recom- who had recommended he read um Childhood's end. I'll, I'll read out the whole thing, it's only a few paragraphs, but you can cut it out if you feel like it, obviously. Dear Joy as far as I can remember, you were non-committal about Childhood's End. I suppose you were afraid that you might raise my expectations too high and lead to disappointment. If that was your aim, it has succeeded, for I came to it expecting nothing in particular and have been thoroughly bowled over. It is quite out of range of the common space and time writers, away up near Lindsay's voyage to Arcturus and *Wells's first man in the moon. There has been nothing like it for years, partly for the actual writing. She has left her toys behind, but ours go hence with us, or The Island Rose to Meet the Dawn. But partly, still more in fact, because here we meet a modern author who understands that there may be things that have a higher claim than the survival or happiness of humanity. It is a strange comment on our age that such a book lies hid in a hideous paperbacked edition, wholly unnoticed by the cognoscenti, while any realistic drivel about some neurotic in a London flat, something that needs no real invention at all, something that any educated man could write if he chose, may get seriously reviewed and mentioned in serious books as if it really mattered. I wonder how long this tyranny will last. Twenty years ago, I felt no doubt that I should live to see it all break up and great literature return. But here I am, losing teeth and hair, and still no break in the clouds. And now, what do you think? Do you agree that it is an absolute corker? Those last three words all in capitals.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no that's that's actually and, and you know not to get too much off, off track on CS Lewis, but I remember him uh, mentioning uh various science fiction writers who had influenced his work and he'd sort of you you were talking about the numinousness of Clark and and you know yeah. Lewis would turn around and and sometimes use science fiction-ish ideas uh to talk about God and theology. Um yeah. he he uh, I remember in um uh, the Great Divorce he talks about um, how he'd read a science fiction story about someone who went back in time, but because you can't change anything, literally everything is immobile. like rain was like bullets and it would pass right through you if it hit you. Um, yeah. and, and he used that as the concept of heaven because if you go to heaven and you're not, and you haven't died and been reborn in, in, in the Christian way, uh, you're a ghost in heaven and, you, and noth- you can't affect or touch, everything's more real than our yeah. world. Uh, so that's, that's definitely, and, and it, I, I, I can see that you having said that, I can see why, um, I can see why Lewis probably was, uh, <laughs> was interested in, in, uh, Clark, because as you say, he does have that sort of eschatological and, and theological, uh, aspect to him, even though he's coming to it from rationalism and science. Uh, yeah. f- sorry, Philip, did you have something you wanted to, uh, to mention there? Oh,
1: I uh, just wanted to add, uh, another book that sort of falls into this, uh, and I haven't read this one yet, but uh, it's it's sort of well known. Uh, 1953's *Children of the Atom* by Wilmar uh, Shiras, oh,
2: yeah. um,
1: uh, which, it, uh, from what I understand, is about a, a a group of children who are like you know the the future of humanity and super intelligent and stuff. And obviously, the name inspired uh,
2: certain aspects of the X Men and stuff.
1: Yes,
0: I which, believe. Yeah, I think. Ah, uh, John and Children of the Atom were the two big inspirations on the X Men. Yeah.
2: yeah. Also, I think the um, another in- inspiration for the X Men was actually probably um, another John Wyndham one, The Chrysalids which is about um, mutants in in, in po- post nuclear war mut- mutants with psychic powers who have who have to remain hidden be- because of religious fundamentalists wanting to kill them, kind of thing. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and the, the, again, there was this whole spurt of these. Kinds of ideas in the late fifties, early uh, the late forties, early fifties, um, and *Childhood's End* is one of the earlier ones, but it's definitely not the earliest. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Oh, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, since you actually know stuff about music and I don't, uh, uh, the the David Bowie song is that inspired
2: by this in any way? The um uh, you think? You think? yeah, yeah, yeah that was it. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was if it was inspired by this. I've not I've not seen him specifically mention this. But I mean the idea of the Homo superior, as we said earlier, comes comes from Stapledon. So it might might have cut it from that. And indeed, if you look at if you look at the whole hunky dory album, um Bowie is mostly taking ideas from free war people like alistair crowley and uh there's some nietzsche in there and there's quite a lot of nazi imagery in there as well um so i so i suspect it's more from those kind of people and from people like bernard shaw and from and from a lot of the people who were actually influential on clark um who There was a big thing in the 30s and earlier about directed evolution, which is where a lot of the horrible eugenic ideas from Nazism have a sort of intellectual, if you can call it that, wellspring. But there were a lot of people on the left as well, including H.G. Wells, including Bernard Shaw, mm-hmm. who, uh, in Wells's case, he believed in eugenics and wanted to perfect humanity. Mm-hmm. In Shaw's case... He believed in Lamarckian evolution and believed that humanity was going to be perfected whether whether we liked it or not just just through the the the, the force of nature and life force and will um and you've, you've got things like Bulwer-Lytton's Ville and things like this 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 is a very 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 common idea before the second World War before the Nazis made it very unfashionable um, and mm-hmm. I and Bowie, of course. I mean, Bowie's flirting with the with the Nazis on the Hunky Dory album. There's a there's a um, a, there's a line in the song Quicksand about about Himmler in there. Um, and he also mentions Crowley a couple of times. And Crowley wasn't a Nazi, of course, but he he was part of the same intellectual stew. Um, and so I it would it would not at all surprise me if Bowie had read Childhood's End, and it would not at all surprise me if that had been an influence on Oh You Pretty Things. I think it's more that Bowie was drawing from a lot of the same sources that Clark was. Yeah,
0: Mm -hmm. he's clearly a huge science fiction fan. There's lots of there's lots of references to to all these kinds of books and that stuff. And and I mean, I think he probably may have been referencing the X Men as well, (laughs) because that was still uh, that was that was quite was Homo the,
1: Superior used in the X-Men at that point? I'm not sure when that entered X-Men. Oh yeah, from so. the beginning. Like it's in the really? it's in the <laughs> okay.
0: first issue of X-Men that they say Homo Superior. Um, okay. so that that's definitely uh it's definitely there in 90 I think uh Punky Dory is 1973, so that was, you know, that was sort okay. of peak yeah. X-Men era. So there it was definitely uh it was definitely there I think. Um I'd be very surprised if it wasn't Somewhere in the studio, I mean, this is, I, I remain not to get off topic here, but I remain convinced that, um, st- I don't think I, maybe this isn't even an original idea, but the station to station is basically, uh, about, uh, Elric. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. so, but, uh, anyway, t- t- getting off topic a bit here.
1: Yeah. Sorry about that. I was just curious. I, I did think it was interesting, uh, in, uh, the book that, uh, cause it is very similar to the day the earth sits still, the movie at least, um, in that uh, the aliens come down to stop us from, from causing havoc to the, to, the, to the universe. But in this case, the uh, nukes are only a small part of it, and most of it is our experimentation with the uh, psychic forces that, if left unchecked, would have um, possibly you know sent out psychic viruses that would have affected the Overminder. Um, I, thought, I thought that was an interesting sort of twist on an idea that wasn't even that common yet.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think this has been uh, really fascinating, and yeah, it's it's it, you know I, I'm glad we did this book. I think it's a good. Uh, it's really w- one of the things we do with this uh, uh, podcast is we're always sort of looking for keystones and and crucial like links in the cultural chain, as it were. And uh, yeah. reading this, I can see how it was a massive influence on post-World War II science fiction. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. uh, just especially, especially pop cultural, like the more uh, movie and the more Hollywood versions of things. Yeah. Um, uh, you I, Like just the, the, the peril of the, the, the influence there is obvious and yeah. enormous. And of I, course, uh, um, even as ahead. recently
2: as a, I'm just thinking, even as recently as Arrival, Arrival is another one that's very, very clearly taken, mm-hmm. taken inspiration from this, you know? Um,
0: oh yeah. Yeah.
2: I think anytime you have,
0: well, I mean, I, 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 I sort of alluded to it almost at the beginning, uh, but like, of course, the the, the TV miniseries V uh, basically yeah. was clearly taking from uh, Clark's idea of just these giant alien spaceships appear one day and we have nothing to do, it. they're just coming out of the blue. Uh, of course, in V, they were evil, and then of course you have the even dumber version of Independence Day, where all they want to do is blow <laughs> yeah. us up for no particular reason. Uh, but they, um, but yeah, like you can see that influence. Um, on, and and you know in this in this story the there's ambiguity as to whether the overlords are good or bad for a long time until we find out they're basically good uh, but uh, they they you know the, the the ominous sort of nature of that image has obviously worked its way into into pop culture uh, very heavily
1: um, yeah I, I just remembered uh, Clark's law the, the famous um, uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic
0: um, yeah.
1: is not quite uh, Word for word uh, said in this book, but it it is sort of um, they, mm. they talk about how the steam engine would seem magic to people to in yeah. the Stone Age, or,
0: yeah. right? And they, they use I mean the mere fact that it's demons, and then they start talking about like psychic phenomena and a, a key scene is them using a Ouija board yes. and so on. Like it's it's obviously <laughs> evoking like the superstitious and 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 supernatural but in a, like, oh, maybe there's a rational reason for some of this stuff, and maybe it can fit with science, it, which is interesting. Um, I, I also think of uh, the book I Am Legend, which is around the, it's the 50s anyway, yeah. uh, which, which tried to be like rationalizing what vampires were. And it's better, a, a, in both cases, they decided, well, it's better to come from a rationalist point of view and, a, and attack these things, but they still have a curiosity about The strange and the supernatural and the numinous. It's not like this stuff is bad and must be destroyed. It's. It's just like, well, now that we have the Enlightenment, we can use that yeah. to examine some of these ideas and maybe there's something there, right?
2: Yeah. Which well, I mean, Clark was very much in, interested in these ideas. I mean, the, the funny thing is, I don't know if the show made it to, to North America at all, but in Britain, Clark is probably best known for a TV series he did called Arthur C. Clark's Mysterious World, which just examines things like uh, 40 and stuff, like the, the crystal skull and uh, those kind of things. And basically, Clark did... Top top and tail of it the same the same way that you'd have, you know Le- Leonard Nimoy doing the top and tailing of those those kinds of shows about about Bigfoot or whatever. But Clark did a lot of did a lot of those in the late seventies early eighties, and that's what he's best known for over here. Um, mm. And he he clearly had a very very rationalist framework, but like many of that generation, he he seemed very very sure that psychic phenomena and fortiana could be included in a rationalist framework um and that's that's of course one of the big differences from the the new atheist people we talked about earlier uh, who in, in other ways have a very very similar worldview to his
0: mm. yeah absolutely that's kind of anyway just it's a, it's a co- it, I, i'm always fascinated by that uh that sort of thing of of what if we can what if we can look at you know crazy woo and but there's a scientific rational we can study it scientifically you know and and with yeah. an open mind i think it's, it's of course it's a big thing in pop culture of course but uh, it's really interesting. yeah well it's time to put away childish things and say farewell to the podcast we are your benevolent overlords adam prosser and philip rice and we were joined by the mysterious galactic overmind andrew hickey <laughs> alex ross is our producer and engineer pulling the strings from his ship somewhere in geosynchronous orbit and the theme song was by the last great composer of humanity, Jack Fierick. Uh Just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what dash mad dash universe for the links. Um, what we do is we generally have a, a, a week off of the public show the public facing show but during that week it's a, the show's available early for Patreon subscribers um, and um, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spear Half-Ock A for Philip uh, and Andrew uh, did you want to plug your podcast?
2: Might as well yep I do a podcast called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs which deals with which talks about the history of rock music um, but which as you can tell from my rambling digressions is full of rambling digressions the, the episode I'm working on at the moment has a brief side note about Robert Heinlein and also about um, Korsipski's general semantics and also about <laughs> um, it also contains the phrase testicles bigger than a bread box so listen out for that one <laughs> Okay,
0: yeah, it's a great podcast. Of course, it doesn't doesn't need us to hype it. It's vastly more popular than our podcast, but it is uh, out there. It's good to look at. Um, hey, Philip, do you want to plug um, uh, Apex Society or anything? Or sure, I do a web comic called Apex Society. There <laughs> we go. <laughs> yeah, check it out. Uh, what's the web? What's the address?
1: Oh, uh, Apex Society. Uh, wait. Uh, sorry, uh, ApexSocietyTheComicSeries.com.
0: Yeah, always fun. Check it out, of course. Pulp Sci-Fi, more of that stuff. Um, So we'll see you uh, wherever human evolution takes us next. And goodbye for now.